The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took his hand and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no mean clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please, let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures always. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have condescended to us, you've accommodated yourself to us, and You've done that in your word, both the written word, as we have read a portion of tonight, and the living word, the incarnate Christ. Thank you for being so kind to us and not leaving us to just grope about in darkness. But so we have seen your kindness in this revelation to us. And may we tonight be reminded of who you are, and may we think right thoughts about you and not let this world and the sinful tendencies of our own natures define you in any way other. We pray that you would work in our hearts now so that we might leave not a stiff-necked people but we might leave pardoned and that we might indeed know that we are your people and you are our God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here we are in the fourth installment of this little series, Whatever Happened to God, considering what is it that has, uh, has led us to this place of not thinking properly about God, people not fearing God as he should. And so we started a few weeks ago looking at this. This is the second iteration of this series, as those who've been around for a while hopefully will remember. 
you know, I, I, don't, I don't fear that as much as I used to. That is, you all remembering that, oh, he's preached that passage before. Uh, I had a, a young friend, a student, pastor in a church in Charlotte, told me uh, this story. And uh, he had been, the, he was the founding pastor and continues being the pastor of this church. He's been there for almost 20 years now. He said he had, uh, uh, the first sermon series that he ever preached there, several years later, uh, they were talking, he and the elders, and they said, you know, uh, we think it's, we were just thinking when you finish this current series, maybe a series uh, more topically oriented, but of course doing expositions uh, concerning this and that. He said, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, gee, I only did that four years ago right here and so he said well you don't think you, you, you don't you don't think there'd be anything wrong with that well no of course not the first Sunday he started the series one of the elders came up to him afterwards and said you know what I'm sorry we didn't suggest this a long time ago this is the this sermon today is what we've been needing since the very beginning of this church he said, I thought he was joking. I said, yeah, and I guess it didn't take the first time. And he said, what do you mean? I, he said, I preached this the first Sunday we were here. And every sermon I'm about to preach for this series, I've preached. And he said, every week after that, somebody would come and say, I think this is, this is exactly what we've been needing. We should have done this a long time ago. So I don't fear y'all remembering me preaching anything anymore uh, the only the on, and, and the only time I would have feared that has, has died that was Jim Andereg sitting right there with his bible full of notes and uh, so he could tell me not only if I'd preached the passage before but he would tell me what John Oliver at first pres Augusta how he preached the passage uh, 35 years ago and uh, so Jim's with the Lord in heaven now, and his Bible is in the family archives down in Augusta, Georgia. I don't have to fear that any of you will remember anything that I say. I'll just trust that the Lord will work it in our hearts every time I say it again. So uh, here we are, though, uh, rehearsing something that we need to rehearse from time to time, and that is, you know, the things we need to know about God. As I said in that first sermon some time back now, uh, what is it that's led churches in general to seem to have a very low view of God, to live a practically atheistic life? I mean, we're not talking about the people out there. We don't expect people out there to think much about God. And it doesn't surprise us, you know, when, when they get it wrong because they're, they're we shouldn't expect them to, to spend time in this book, but we should expect Christians to. And then when Christians say things, like I've heard, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And then they may even suggest that's their favorite Bible verse. Well, it's not in the Bible and it's not good theology either. 
He helped you when you couldn't and wouldn't help yourself. And he still does that for his people. Uh, God grant me the, 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 the serenity prayer of, of neighbor that AA uses. I had a woman once say, that's my favorite part of the Bible. She had it on her wall. It's not in the Bible. It's really not very biblical. What, what leads people in the church to say, pardon me, but dumb things like that? Well, they've lost a view of God. God doesn't, God doesn't grip them anymore, if ever he did. So we looked that first night, at, we, we need a good, healthy dose of the fear of God. Do we properly fear God? Well, the follow-up to that was, well, if we're going to fear God properly, we've got to see him in all of his holiness. He's the thrice holy God, holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? And then we talked about the righteousness of God or our unconsciousness of our own unrighteousness. And so tonight we're going to start on a more positive note. Those are positive in their own way, but tonight is... We need to know the right things about God. Because what I fear is, and what I, what I know is, people out there do this, but people inside the churches of this land and around the, the, the globe do this. We tend to make God in our own image. We've seen a great example of this in the past hundred I'll just say 100 years. It started earlier than 100 years ago. But with the, with the rise of modern psych psychology and a modern anthropology that was more psychologically uh, oriented, we've, we've, we've had a great disastrous uh, turn in theological circles concerning the doctrine of God. For instance, up until that time, never, ever, ever in the history of the church, you can check me out, I don't, I'm not fearful that you'll find anywhere. No one ever questioned that God was impassable. You're saying, huh? Okay, you don't need to know that big word necessarily, but it means this, is that God in his passions, in his, in his, the way he is, is not affected by us. In other words, when we do something silly, dumb, God doesn't get sad. He doesn't react to us. He's not reactionary. That links in with his, he doesn't change. God is unchanging, immutable. But with the advent of the modern psychological movement, all of a sudden people started reading God through man's lens instead of reading God through a theological lens or through a God lens. Instead of reading God through his prescription 
we began reading God through our prescription. Do you know how distorted that'll make things? I just got new lens put in my old frames. When they called and said, they're here, I went. And they were, and they weren't. She took my frames back to her little secret room. She came back and said, there you go. I put them on. I said, ooh. Ooh. And if any of y'all who wear glasses have ever had the wrong prescription, and all of a sudden your whole innards start churning, she said, something wrong. I said, yeah, these are not mine. I'm sorry. She said, so she goes back and she reads them on the machine. She comes back and she looks at the, she said, yeah, just what the doctor wrote. I said, well, I'm sorry. Tell him I got to have a new refraction right now. I got to, he, he got something wrong. So I go back. He worked me in real quickly, thankfully. And he does the, again, and he says, where did I get those numbers? I said, I don't know, but they're not my numbers. I said, just give me my old ones back, scratched up as they are. He said, well, we're going to have to today. We'll get the right ones ordered. But see, if I'd have gone out of there trying to look through somebody else's prescription, my whole world would have been a mess. I wouldn't have seen anything properly. And that's what started happening with the advent of modern psychological era was we started reading God through modern psychology and modern anthropology, the doctrine of man, instead of through a biblical anthropology and a biblical psychology. And all of a sudden, when, when something happens bad in my life, it changes me. I'm going to tell you, when our son Kaz had that near-death uh, sickness in 2017. Yeah, it was that long ago. She's questioning my math, and I know when it was. I hope, I'm sure some of y'all could say, oh yeah, you've been different ever since then, in a lot of ways, because I know I have. And I'm going to tell you, this past year, being sick, I've never been sick this much in my whole life. Add up my whole life and it doesn't total the sickness I've had this year. And it changes you. But God doesn't change. And yet he sympathizes with us. He understands. No, no, no. Not the, not the website movement that you see at football. I'll... I, I yearn to see the baseball games again when John 3.16 man is standing right behind the, the home plate. See, many of you in this room either uninitiated in baseball or you're too young to remember the John 3.16 man. But many of you remember seeing the John 3.16, the guy with John 3.16 painted all over himself. And he would get, how he got on the camera every inning of a baseball game, I don't know. He was at college games. Instead of, he gets us. Have you heard this little new gimmick ad thing? He gets us. It's meant to say that, oh, he understands. Well, he does, but not in the sense, if you go on their website, it's not in that sense he understands. In other words, what they're saying is he understands, and by the way, he, 
He's not going to get you for it. I'm going to tell you, this passage for us says he'll get you for it if you, don't, if you don't turn to God, if you don't repent. Just as the writer to the Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, he says to the young men, go ahead, do the things you want to do, enjoy life, but know this, God will get you for it. Now what the preacher is saying there is, live life according to your own anthropology, according to your own psychology, and just see what happens. But it'd be a whole lot better, he gets to at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it'd be so much better if you would know God and obey God. Those are really the two choices. So, knowing God is important. J.I. Packer wrote the classic book. I hope everyone has read it. If not, this is a good time to be reminded to read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Read R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. Oh, the pastor today, sweet pastor, this sweet little church. He said, now, I guess he hadn't checked up on me. I'm pretty easy to check up on, but I guess he hadn't. And he said, I see, I see in the information that I was handed that you're a Presbyterian minister. And I said, yeah, but he said, um, PCA? I said, Yes, he said, oh, good. He said, I like me a good dose of R.C. Sproul. And I said, well, there are a lot of us like that. I'm glad you do. We had a good conversation later. But what was R.C.'s thing? Coram Deo, in the face of God doing everything cognizant of the fact that we are in the presence of God at every moment. Second, what is God, what is, why do you need to be saved? Well, you know, the evangelical answer is so you can go to heaven when you die. No, not biblically. You need to be saved from God. God's your enemy. He's a consuming fire. And as we see here, he's a, he's a punitive God. By no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, sin has consequences. And you can't get away from it. Go ahead. Live your life according to your anthropology, according to your psychology and God will get you for it. But the first part of the passage is the, is the good news. So let's look at it real quickly. That's a big, long introduction. And no, I realize what time it is. So just because I didn't get to preach this morning, I'm not going to do two, two times the sermon tonight, okay? First, it starts with recognizing that God is a person. Now here, if I were teaching a course... I would go into the whole legal definition of a person. And then we'd go back to Tertullian in the early church period. And we would, we would talk about how wonderful it is that Tertullian gave the church this great understanding of what it means biblically for God to be a person. Because we think of a person 
we look in the mirror and we see a person. And then we think, okay, but this person can't be three persons and this one person all at the same time. We have names for that. It's called schizophrenia and bipolar and all other sorts of things. It's a sad thing. God's not a sad thing. He's not a three-headed monster. We used to drive the interstate, uh, even before the interstate, old U.S. Highway 11 uh, from, from Gadsden, where I grew up, to Chattanooga, where my, 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 several of my, my relatives live. And there was an exit up at Wildwood that said, come see the two-headed goat. Come see the three-headed cow. My daddy would never take us. We wanted to go. And he was, nope, we're not going over there. Not going to give them money to see sad-looking animals. Our God's not like that. So when we think of a person, and we think if we try to make him in our image, it won't work, will it? Because you can't look in the mirror and see three in one. Or one who is three. So you have to, you have to put that aside. And say, okay, no, I've got to understand God through God's terms, in God's psychology and God's anthropology. And we also know God is spirit. Okay. But then we know that God said, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, make man in our image. And then we can get tripped up on this. Well, I have a body, but God's spirit. How could he, I guess he, had, he has a body up there in heaven. Right? Anybody ever thought that? Well, then you read your Bible and said, no, wait, he doesn't have a body up there. Didn't have a body until the second person of the Godhead came and took on flesh. But we're still made in his image. And yet we have flesh. We have bodies. Children, your catechism. God is a spirit. He does not have a body like we, right? But we're made in his image. And yet, that helps us think about the incarnation because, okay, so at some point, even back then, at the beginning of time, when he said, let us make man in our image, and don't confuse potentiality here with God's decree but God in his decree to make us in his image knew that at some time he was going to send his son to take on flesh and that's when we look most like the image bearers that he designed us to be because we're most like his son Jesus Christ who took on flesh in time and space He's a person. And that comes in as he, he says right there at the beginning of verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. All of a sudden you start thinking, oh my goodness, look at this. Look at these attributes that he displays that are... Are, are, and some of them are communicable attributes. That is, we are also slow to anger sometimes. We're merciful to people. 
sometimes. We're gracious sometimes. We speak. God spoke. And so at a very simple level, that's all I'm going to do. Pastor Morris is going to go into great detail on Tertullian's definition of a person legally. So I won't take time to do that tonight. But we think first, okay, God is a person. What I'm wanting you to see here is sometimes people think of God in this unknowable, phantom, fantastic, phantasmic sense. Right? That, oh, God is this something that I can't even comprehend. I mean, he's, he's even as, he's more incomprehensible than Casper the Friendly Ghost. We could at least see Casper on the TV screen. And so we end up with, I don't, you know, how do I think about God? Well, first it starts with just plain, he's a person. The Holy Spirit could be grieved. The Holy Spirit could be lied to. The son here on this earth was harmed. He was spat upon. Our God is a person. But he's, he's not just any person. He's a powerful person. Do you see what it says there? The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious. El, the God word there. The Lord, the Lord is Yahweh, Yahweh. That goes back to Chapter 3 in Exodus, where he reveals himself. I am who I am. I am who I was. I am who I will be. I am. Period. And then immediately, chapter 3, verse 15 and verse 16, that I am who I am. Here's my name. Yahweh, Lord. He connects the dots for us. But that's his personal name. That's his name that he relates to us as his personal people. But then he's a powerful person, and that's revealed in the word God here. That denotes his power. And so we think of him being the creator God, making all things ex nihilo, out of nothing. So he's a powerful God, but he's also a sustaining God all through the Bible. He not only made it all, he holds it all together. We find that even into the New Testament, right? Even with our Lord Jesus Christ in Colossians. He made it and all things are held together by him. One translation says he sustains all things. But I think it was the old NASB 1995 that really got it. Just fleshed out the literalness of it. He holds all things together. You just get this image of this powerful right arm of God with his grip nice and tight on the whole universe, keeping every star in its place, every planet in its place, and every little ant person on this globe in their proper place. He's all powerful. So God's a person. He's a powerful person. Third, he's a person of mercy and grace. The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, I just notice, merciful and gracious. We talk about mercy. God withholding the things we deserve. And then it's picked up on there in slow to anger. So there's, there's your connection. 
merciful, slow to anger. And then he's gracious. He is gracious. And then it comes abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See the connection? How the writer's making this work so that you understand. What does it mean for him to be merciful? Well, he's slow to anger. The word in the Hebrew is used for a mother's care for her children. Slow to anger, patient. Dads, we're not quite so slow to anger sometimes. And here God is, God is defined uh, in this sense by being uh, like a motherly one. Patient, slow to my mama. There are people there today at the church that knew my mama. And it made me so happy that they said I look just like her. I don't talk like her, but I look like her. She was so patient. She was so kind. My daddy, he would snap me up by whatever hair was on my head and fix me like that. Mama would just, now come here. Let's talk about this. Before the fly swat ever came out, we'd talk. And that's what's going here is he's slow to anger. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God is slow to anger? How many of you today deserved God's almighty thumb just snuffing you out? I'm not talking about yesterday or the day before today. We all do. Every day, every moment. And if it were not for him being merciful, slow to anger. And then couple that with gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And notice how abounding he is. Verse 7a tells us. It's not just enough for the writer to say he's abounding in steadfast love. By the way... That's that hesed word, right? Now your translation may read loving kindness. Uh, here the ESV translates it steadfast love. That's the hesed word and his faithfulness. And how abounding is he for keeping steadfast love for thousands? In other words, it just goes on and on. Jesus got at this when, that, when they, he was asked, how, 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 much do, how many times do we ask to be forgiven? How many times will God forgive us? Seven times? The complete number? Seven times? And Jesus said seven times 70. In other words, thousands. Bukus. It just goes on and on. But then, that's the good news. Then we have the bad news. And that is that God's a person who's not only full of grace and mercy. I also love the word mercy because I love the Latin translation. Uh, the, the Latin presents mercy as misericordia. It's not misery, but it. it sounds like it's misericordia and it's it's the pity the 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 deep pity of the heart you hear 
misericordia in there, the heart. It's the pity of the heart he has toward us when he's slow to anger. And it's the same then that pity of the heart is coupled with the steadfast love and faithfulness. But then the writer wants us to know that, hey, just as abounding in steadfast love, just as his steadfast love is extended to thousands, there's a condition here. Don't just expect the good news. You see what he said? That this steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, extends to the whole gamut of our sin, iniquity, transgression, and sin. But those who don't receive the forgiveness of God, those who aren't recipients of his covenant faithfulness and his covenant love, those for whom he is not presented as the Lord, the Savior. Notice what it says. There's a contrast right in the middle of that verse 7. But who, he, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is a punitive God too. He's a person. He's a powerful person. He's a person of grace and mercy. But don't dally around, folks. Don't play with God. Don't just assume that, oh, everything's going to be fine. It's all going to wash out. After all, he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. Yep, he is, but he's a much bigger God than that. He's also a God of punishment for those who are not forgiven. As I said, it goes on and on. Sin has its consequences. That's one of the things that's so frightful, isn't it? We're going to get to the, in the Ten Commandments, I'm sure Pastor Morris will bring out. There are sins that affect not only us when we sin, but they affect our children. And it's not just those sins. We have to be careful in our thinking here. Well, yeah, sure, if I sin, if I say the wrong thing, that hurts their feelings. Or they think wrongly about a father if I don't act like a good godly father. Yeah, but how about those sins they don't know you do? Dads, moms. This passage, the whole gamut's dealt with. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, sin. That's in, out, all around. Sin. But then he doesn't clear the guilty. And those who don't have their sins covered, it extends way beyond them. That's part of the whole covenant concept. He's a person who deals with sin. I think maybe we've lost that, that aspect of God. We don't, we don't like to talk about the God of, of hell. But did you notice what it says here? If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord. Well, first, let me back up. What, what, what is this? 
What does this do to Moses after the Lord passes before him and proclaims all this to him? Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. How easy it is for us to, to, to listen to what I've just said, to read the verses I've just read, and get up and go out of those doors and just have a jolly good time. And that's fine. It's God's creation. We should go out and have a jolly good time. But there ought to be the effect of worship. And our worship should be deeper and thicker and stronger because of what we've just rethought about God. And then he addresses, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us for your inheritance. That should be our prayer tonight. Lord, pardon our sin, take us for your inheritance. And how is it we've become an inheritance, a peculiar people? By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. He's the Lord after all. You go to the New Testament. Many of these Lord passages, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D passages, get translated in the New Testament concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. And all pardon. And again, I'm going to go back to he clears the guilty. He clears us of iniquity, transgression, and sin. That encompasses everything inside us, outside us, all around us. It's remarkable how complete his forgiveness is. So let's not leave stiff-necked. Let's leave pardoned and enjoying who we are as children of God with all the inheritance. Go read our chapter in the Confession of Faith on adoption. And just think about what is ours. We are heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That's a remarkable thing to think about. Father, thank you for this evening. And we pray that we leave thinking better thoughts, more about you. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.